So our next reading is uh, Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, reading of verse 31 uh, down to 39. And uh, let's pray before we read. Lord, again, thank you for your word and the glorious truth that's in it. And again, we pray that you'd help us to discover the treasures that are here and to treat them so as, as such and that our hearts be filled with uh, rejoicing at your goodness towards us. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. So I want to read verses 31 to 39, but we're only going to be thinking about 31 and 32 this evening. And Paul says, uh, coming up to the conclusion of chapter 8, and he says, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, with him, graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised? Who is at the right hand of God? Who indeed is interceding for us? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Now in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Uh, James Packer, the great Anglican who died recently, uh, describes, describes this chapter as... Uh, a rhapsody uh, on assurance. The whole chapter is a rhapsody on assurance. It is uh, an enthusiastic, uh, almost ecstatic discussion of the assurances that can come uh, to someone when they put their faith in Jesus Christ, when they find that they are united to Christ through that faith. And therefore they are, and that faith is a spirit-worked faith, and it's the indwelling spirit, empowering spirit that enables them to live in a new way, uh, overcoming sin and uh, living for righteousness. In spite, and that's all that's true, in spite of the fact that uh, to become a Christian brings about, as it were, a new conflict uh, within uh, as the, the Christian wrestles within his or her flesh with this whole presence of sin, it's, the penalty of sin is broken. Uh, the, power of, uh, the penalty of sin is paid. The power of sin is broken. But the presence of sin is still present and it's not yet dead. Uh, we have died to sin, but sin itself is not yet dead in us. That will come at the glorification. And... Uh, Uh, 
And so the, the Holy Spirit helps us to, to live uh, in this conflict and to live fighting, as it were, these spiritual battles. Uh, but the indwelling Spirit also allows us to relate to, the heavenly, to our Father as a Heavenly Father. So we cry by new orientation, if you like, by the new creation, Abba, Father. Uh, and now God is no longer a distant deity that we don't know, but he is one whom we have come to know as our Father in heaven. And so now we, we look forward to, uh, with hope to the resurrection, freed from the power and authority of sin, received as children of God into his presence, the glorious uh, unveiling or revelation of the sons of God, as Paul says earlier. And Paul's at pains, I think, to assure us and, and to assure these Christians that all this is true of them. It's true for you and me if we're Christians this evening. These things are true regardless of our personal circumstances, regardless of our struggles and our sufferings. And it does appear that the uh, this church that Paul is writing to is enduring some sufferings. Back in verse 18, uh, he, he alludes to it. He says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is revealed, uh, is, uh, that is to be revealed in a, um, to us. Some of us in this room are having to suffer things, many difficult things. Of all kinds. Yet when we rightly grasp what's become ours in Christ. Then the simple truth is that those struggles and trials. uh, Become less significant. In the light of the glory that is ours in Christ. And that's why we need to keep focusing on the cross. Keep focusing on the resurrection. Keep focusing on how God has demonstrated his love to us and how he continues to help us by his spirit. Now, if, if what we've read in chapter 8 is the, high, is, is the high point in Paul's letter, then again, uh, James Packer, J.I. Packer, says these verses at the end of the chapter are the Himalayas. <laughs> so... Chapters of high points, the high grounds, these verses of the Himalayas. Not just the high point, he says, of of Paul's letter, actually, but of the whole of Scripture. The glory of these verses is amazing. And I've no doubt that he is right, uh, because it contains some of the most wonderful statements to us about the blessings and privileges of the Christian life that you can find anywhere in the Bible. So now he's, uh, he's drawing things to a conclusion. And uh, he begins with this question, what then shall we say to these things? And these things, the, the things he just mentioned, are all the things that he's just mentioned. Um, these things that he's been talking about, what can we say about these things that we've not said already, is kind of what he's saying. But he's saying, let's draw it all together. Let's answer some, some practical questions. And it, so in laying out... Uh, all the wonderful things he said, Paul knows that I think there would have been questions in the minds of his readers. Uh, 
What about this? What about that? And so, by way of drawing things together, Paul uh, concludes by asking four questions that he imagines his readers um, asking as they're uh, reading this and being or having it read to them. And and the first question is in verse thirty-one: If God is for us, who can be against us? If God is for us, who can be against us? Very important. We get that question clear in our minds. The second question is in verse 33. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? And the third question is, who is to condemn? Who is there to condemn now, given all that God has done? And then the fourth question in verse 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Great practical questions that we need to have clear answers to. And uh, Paul is going to give us to them. So this, in this study, I just want to look at verses 31 and 32. And we're only going to look at one of those, the first of those questions. If God is for us, who can be against us? And, uh, you know, well, why split them off? Uh, well, let me add my little, let me develop Packer's little analogy. If these are the Himalayas, <laughs> the Himalayan mountain range, then verse 32 has surely got to be the the Everest of the mountain range. Uh, Because it has uh, a wonderful uh, set of truths in there. So three things about these two verses. Firstly, to say that there are enemies. Secondly, we're going to talk about how God is for us. And I want to look at how we can know that for sure. And thirdly, in conclusion, that we're going to receive everything that he promised. And how do we know that? First of all, there are enemies. So our ESV translation has it as, if God is for us, who can be against us? And uh, as we think about that verse, we we might think to ourselves, we might come to the conclusion that, of course, if we have God on our side, as we do, then all the enemies of God might disappear. Uh, As though it's a rhetorical question, expecting the answer, nobody's against us. In other words, as soon as God appears on the scene, they all scatter and so our lives become lives as Christians of enemyless bliss. Is that a word? Enemyless? (laughs) I just made that up. Uh, A life without enemies. Is Is that what we're supposed to take from this? Actually, I think that's a, a slight mistake, to be honest. The literal rendering of the sentence is, of the question is, if God is for us, who is against us? Not who can be against us. Who is against us? And the meaning is that when we look and see God on our side, and, think, and just think about that for a moment, just think how, how great he is. How marvelous God is to have him on our side. And then you turn to the enemies around us, spiritual enemies, maybe people who are against us as Christians. And you compare the two. There is no comparison. And the point is, it's not that there are no enemies. There are enemies. But the point is, when we have God in our side, the enemies are tiny and puny in comparison to our God. So if God is for us, who's against us? 
or we'll come to how God is for us in a moment. But I want just, but I just want us to note that there are indeed enemies against us. And the primary, and I'm going to work my way through it, but the primary enemy is the one who constantly brings accusations against us. Satan. That's what he does. He brings accusations constantly against us. I'll come to Satan in a second, but just imagine, and for some of us this may be close to reality, but just imagine you're living in the world and you're a Christian now, but the world around you has a totally different view of the world, a totally different set of ideas, a totally different set of philosophies, a totally different um, uh, sense of morality, what's good and what's evil. And that's, that's one of the problems, isn't it? That the world around us thinks totally differently. And so it puts pressure. There's a constant pressure on Christians to be just like the world, to think like they do, to act like they do, to say what they say is good, we've to say is good. Whatever they say is evil, they're constantly pressurizing us to, say, to agree with them and say that's evil. But what happens, of course, in a godless world... Everything gets turned on its head. And what's good is called evil, and what's evil is called good. And we're under that pressure all the time to continually agree with the world. Add to that the passions that are at work in our hearts. So outside there's the world. Inside there are the passions that are at work in our hearts and in our bodies. Actually, Paul refers to that back in chapter 6. He gives this instruction, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal bodies to make you obey their passions. The passions of your bodies. We have those passions. They come from the sin that is in within. Or think about James. Some of us have been studying James, the book of James, in our men's group. And James 4.1 says, What causes quarrels and fights and causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? There's always something we want. And sometimes we don't even realize how sinful it is and how, uh, how sinful the passion is that's within us. It's driving us and pushing us in a certain direction. Passions constantly seek us to pursue to seek pleasure, to seek comfort, to seek security, or anything at all other than God. To seek power, to seek influence, to seek reputation. And that would lead you into sin and take you away from God. So there's, there's the external world with its view of the world. There's the passions that are within. And then, of course, there's Satan himself. Continually speaking. With that little voice that brings temptations into your mind. Where he whispers in your ear. That sin? Well, just do it. Everybody's doing it. Nobody will notice. God doesn't mind. Do you have a hankering for something? This is what Satan says. Do you have a hankering for something? Did God really say that that's a bad idea? Well, it's alright really. He won't mind. He'll let you off. He'll forgive you. 
And so that's the way temptation works, isn't it? That's the way Satan works. He minimizes the significance of the, the thing he's trying to get you to do. He minimizes the sin. And he says, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Just do it. It doesn't matter. But once you've given in, something else starts happening. Something else starts rising up within your soul. And you, you begin to doubt your salvation. You begin to doubt God. And you begin to say, that terrible thing that I've done. As Satan whispers in your ear, he maximizes those, those thoughts. And he says, that terrible thing that you've done, he will never accept you now. God will never accept you. How can you be a real Christian if you've done that? How many people I've met over the years who have exactly that problem? How can I be a Christian if I've done all these terrible things? And suddenly your insignificant sin that you've just drifted into becomes a reason for you doubting your very salvation. See, this is the battle that we're in. The enemy, there are enemies around us. And I dare say that the greater the external pressures of difficult circumstances, the greater the temptations are from these three sources. It's not circumstances that cause you to sin, but circumstances, as it were, seem to fan into flame the temptations that seem to emerge. And doubts come into our minds about whether or not God is really for us. All because there are real enemies against us. And we need to know that. And we need to be therefore prepared to face those enemies and to recognize them. But thanks be to God, that's not the final word. The enemies of God don't have the final word. Because Paul's at pains... To show that if somebody is truly a believing Christian, somebody who has the Holy Spirit indwelling, then God is for that person. God is for us. And that's our second point. God is indeed for us. If you're a Christian today, God is for you. God is for his people. Now, it's one thing to assert that. It's quite another thing to know it in your own soul. And I hope that you're... How do you know that God is for you? I wonder how you'd answer that question. And I hope it's not this answer. Well, I've got my health. I've got plenty of money. I'm happy. And so I know that God is for me because all these things are in place. I'm pretty certain that some people think that. And sometimes we can drift into that thinking. I've got my health. I've got money. I'm happy. And so God must be for me. We have this tendency, I think, to say, if I can get through life, Without serious illness. If I can get through life and have a good job. If I can get through life and be happy all the time. I just want to be happy and wealthy and healthy. Then I'll know that God is for me. And that he loves me. Now is that how Paul shows us that God is for us? Well absolutely not. If anything, he suggests that none of these things, uh, 
things have got anything to do with whether or not God is for you and loves you. Why? Because he expects people to endure suffering. He expects Christians to endure suffering. In verse 18, he's spoken about the sufferings of this present time. And just look at the list of things that he lists here in verse 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? Uh, Now, Paul has experienced all of those things. In fact, in 2 Corinthians 11, he goes into great detail about all the things he suffered. And even then, it's not an exhaustive list. He suffered a great many things. And I think it's hard to be healthy, wealthy, and happy when you have all of those things going on. But Paul's point is that your circumstances and how you feel about them have no bearing on whatsoever on whether God is for you or whether he loves you. What is the evidence that Paul draws out to prove that God is for Christians? Well, in verse 32... Uh, There are two facts. Fact number one, God the Father did not spare his only son, his own son. Fact number two, he gave him up for us all. Fact number one, God the Father did not spare his only son. Fact number two, he gave him up for us all. It's all about the cross. It's all about Jesus Christ. And it's vitally important for us to grasp the significance of what Paul is saying. Paul is clearly thinking here about Jesus Christ going to the cross and suffering a a terrible death. And, And yes, the Romans and the Jews sent him to the cross and put Jesus to death. But they weren't the ultimate cause of Jesus' death, were they? They were just instrumental. An instrument in whose hands? In God's hands. Because it was God himself who sent his son. It was God who delivered him up to be crucified. It was in the plan and purpose of God. Isaiah 53 verse 10. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. God sent his son. To be crushed. Now just think about a father giving over his son to be crushed. Again, I'm going to refer to Genesis 22 and we're going to come back to it next week again. You know, we're still, I mentioned it this morning already, so we're getting a lot of Genesis 22 anyway. <laughs> um, but do you remember that story? Abraham and Isaac, Genesis 22. And God said to Abraham, To take his only son, the one he loved, the one he'd longed for for decades, and finally had come and uh, was now born and was now a young lad. And God says to Abraham, take your only son and take take, take him up the mountain and sacrifice him. Put him to death. And you read that story of how he goes up with Isaac up the mountain, and you're thinking, what on earth is going on? Why on earth is God seeking the sacrifice of a son, this child's sacrifice? And it horrifies us. 
And it seems totally, it's totally wrong that a father should, should sacrifice his son and kill his son. And we kind of squirm at the very thought of it. But we know how the story ends. At the moment when Abraham is about to plunge the knife into the heart of Isaac, who's trussed up and ready to be sacrificed, God shouts to Abraham, Stop! And Isaac is spared in that moment. And almost miraculously, a ram is stuck in some bushes nearby. And that becomes the sacrifice, the substitutionary sacrifice. And that, sacri- that serves to save Isaac's life. Well, that was the picture, and it's a true event, but it's a, it's a picture foretelling of an. A, foretelling that another father and his son would do a similar thing. God the Father and God the Son. Yet this time, there would be no intervention from heaven. No voice saying stop. Because there is no other voice greater than God's. And so the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, was not spared the suffering And humiliation of the cross. And no voice to stay his father's hand. As he took punishment. Instead he was given up. He was handed over to death. On the cross. Now unlike Isaac. Who knew nothing. Jesus knew very well what was coming. Indeed that was the purpose of his life. To suffer and to die. And there was that gut wrenching moment. We looked at on Thursday. uh, When we thought about Gethsemane. And Jesus saying, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. But not my will, but your will be done. If there's any other way, please let it pass. But there was no other way. There is no other way. Jesus did not go to his death unwillingly, but it was painful. It was humiliating. It was crushing. Why did God not spare his son but give him up to the cross? Simple reason for us all. For you Roman Christians and for me in writing to you, says Paul, and for all Christians everywhere, his own beloved church all across the world. He gave up his son for us all. But listen, we, we get a sense of this pain and shame that the handing over to Jesus to death caused. But there's more. If that death was for us, and that was the only way of salvation, does that not tell you the greatness of our need before God? That if this is the only way that God could deal with our sin, does that not tell you how great our sin is? How deep a problem it is? How awful the prospect is of us not being saved from it if the Father had to do this. 
if he had to go to these lengths to save his people. But oh, how, how great his love for us. How marvelous his commitment to us, that he is for us, that he is willing to give up his only son, and that his son was willing to suffer. And it's in this that we know that God really loves us. How do you know God loves you? How do you know that God is for you? Look at the cross and see what God was willing to do for your sin. Last thing to think about is that all things are now for us. All things. How will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? This is a verse that I've learned for years, and yet even now I wrestle with the sheer scale of what is promised. I learned it 40 years ago. If he had said, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us these things, it might be easier. Uh, and these, all these things he has promised in the preceding verses, and they're, they're wonderful enough. The benefits of salvation, election, calling, justification, resurrection, glorification. Yet he says, not just these things, but he says, all things. All things. Now why does he say that? He is this, all things come because we get Christ. Because we have Christ, we get all things. And Christ, you see, exercises his threefold ministry at the right hand of God as the exalted Christ, as prophet, priest, and king. And he has, as king, he has all things under his feet. In other words, he has complete authority over all things. And we will sit with him. We will march with him. And all things will be ours because Jesus Christ is ours. That's a great hope that the Christian has. That whatever the problems and difficulties we face today, whatever we lack, whatever deficiencies we have in our lives, we have this cast iron, rock solid assurance that all things will be ours in Christ Jesus. And the evidence for this, that God did not spare his only son, but gave him up for us all. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your wonderful provision for us. Thank you for Jesus Christ. Thank you that you did not spare him. And that the Son of God came willingly to suffer and to die, to be delivered up to death. And how terrible it is for him, it was for him. And yet how glorious for us. We don't take it lightly. We don't presume upon it. But Lord, our hearts are filled with thankfulness. We pray that you would continue to assure us when troubles and trials come that Jesus Christ is ours and God is for us. Amen.